Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight's story was actually a listener request from a while back. I did not document where this request came from or who sent it in, but it's a good one. It's got a love triangle, a sex scandal, and murder, and it was the first execution of a husband and wife in England in nearly 150 years. So thank you to the listener who recommended this case. If you have a case request, you can contact me on my website or at any of my social media channels. This is the story of the Bermondsey Horror. But first, a Victorian society tip. Later on in our story, you'll hear about how what one woman wore to the gallows supposedly caused that style of dress to go out of fashion for decades. And it made me want to know more about the rise and fall of other Victorian fashion trends. So tonight's tip is just that, Victorian fashion trends. First, let's talk about the extravagant, brightly colored hues of women's dresses. Vibrant reds, oranges, and more were all around before the Victorian era, but they were mostly derived from natural sources like plants and crushed insects and had to be imported from Brazil or other locations. So they were really only for the wealthy. In 1853, though, British chemist William Henry Perkins developed one of the first aniline dyes. It was a deep, rich purple, and they called it moivine. At the time of the discovery, he'd actually been working on a cure for malaria. He did continue the malaria work as assigned, but started working on this dye project on the side with his brother. A cure for malaria wouldn't come about until nearly 100 years later, but in the meantime, Perkins' work did pave the way for a variety of purples, magentas, yellows, blues, and pinks. Now, as brighter dyes became easier to produce, more and more lower-class people were able to wear them. Soon, they were starting to wear colors that were similar to the upper class and royalty, and we could not have that. So, upper class citizens started wearing paler shades, until those styles started to trickle down as lower classes emulated the upper crust, and then brighter colors were adopted again. And around we go. Obviously, like today, it's clear that the rich and famous were the trendsetters. But where were the Victorian trendsetters getting their fashion advice from? The answer is Paris. In 1860, clothing designer Charles Worth created styles for the French Empress Eugenie, Empress Elizabeth of Austria, and Queen Victoria. Charles Worth is known today as the father of haute couture, or the father of high fashion. Now, thanks to the advent of the printing press, sewing machine, and paper patterns, distributing catalogs and mass production of clothing really made changing fashion trends accessible to many levels of society. Another trend that rose rapidly during the Victorian era was the use of fans. This, again, originated out of Paris, where fan maker Jean-Pierre Duvalroy published a leaflet titled The Language of the Fan. So often, Victorians couldn't just say what they meant, they had to imply their meaning through a number of subtle, nuanced expressions and gestures. The more well-bred you were, the more you would understand this language. Duvalroy's Language of the Fan was one of those need-to-know languages, or at least that's what they wanted you to think. The language of the fan consisted of about two dozen actions one could do with their fan to wordlessly communicate their meaning to another party. For example, carrying a fan in your right hand in front of your face was meant to tell someone to follow you. Carrying it in your left hand in front of your face meant you were desirous to make someone's acquaintance. Touching your left ear with your fan meant you were telling someone to go away. Drawing a fan across your forehead meant to say you have changed, and so on and so forth. I'll share the full list on Instagram and the episode blog on my website if you're interested in the entire list. Now, this was really just good marketing to sell more fans, but it worked. 
Now, I haven't mentioned menswear so far, but that is about to come into play when we talk about another major shift in Victorian-era fashion trends, which was the transition of women wearing crinoline skirts to bustles. Prior to the Victorian era, men and women wore much of the same fabrics and colors. Silk fabric and colorful wardrobes were more aligned with what class you were rather than gender. But as the Industrial Revolution wore on, more and more women were going to work, and not everyone liked that. Many thought a woman's place should be in the home, and as a result, this shift began to occur where they started making women's clothes out of lighter, more delicate fabrics that were suited for homemaking, and men's attire became more sturdy and rugged meant for working outside the home. Now, as this shift was happening, the influence of the male gaze began playing more and more a part in women's fashion. And crinoline skirts that created an evenly distributed bell shape started to fall out of favor for bustles that created, quite frankly, the illusion of a large posterior. Now, instead of that bell shape, padding and literally steel structures were tied around a woman's waist to make one's skirt jut out in the back. The crinolines weren't super comfy to begin with, but bustles were even worse. They were nearly impossible to sit in, and the medical community came down on them pretty hard. Despite this, bustles persisted until about the 1910s, when long-line corsets stepped in to achieve the desired dress shape, though the 1920s finally put an end to those, as well as, by now, long-gone bustles and crinolines. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. We'll start our story with Marie Lavoux, who was born in Lausanne, Switzerland in 1821. The 1849 work, The Progress of Crime, or Authentic Memoirs of Marie Manning by Robert Ewish, did paint a colorful picture of her early life in Switzerland and later life in England, but know if you happen to run across this account of her life, it's entirely false. Ewish apparently wrote one good book on beekeeping, then turned his attention to writing historical biographies of famous people and events. However, pretty much everything he wrote was made up just to increase book sales. The truth is, we don't actually know anything about Marie's life before about 1843, when she entered into domestic service as a lady's maid for a Lady Anna Polk in Halden House in Devon, England. By 1846, Lady Polk had passed away, and Marie found work again as a lady's maid, this time for Lady Blantyre of Stafford House, today Lancaster House, in London. Now, the fact that these houses have names, meaning they're actually small palaces, and her employers are all titled Lady So-and-So, should tell you that Marie has been fortunate enough to find herself working not only for the upper crust of society, but for nobility. And this affords her a lot of opportunities to travel and interact with many above her station. She'd even met Queen Victoria. Her engagement with the Pauks and the Blantyres allowed her to wear expensive clothes, have nice jewelry, and eat fine food. No one is quite sure when, but it's likely somewhere in this three-year period that Marie made the acquaintance of Patrick O'Connor. It's commonly reported that they met on a ship traveling to France. O'Connor was a solid 20 years older than Marie, but he was wealthy. One source described O'Connor as, quote, a crooked customs inspector who combined smuggling with money lending to lucrative results. Despite the age gap, Marie could not resist his charms or perhaps the allure of his bank account, and the two struck up a romantic relationship. The relationship remained casual, however, mostly letter writing and the occasional visit whenever O'Connor found himself in the neighborhood. 
his work kept him busy traveling after all. Plus, Marie had other suitors, namely a man named Frederick Manning, who she had met in 1845, about a year before entering into Lady Blintyre's service. Fred was employed as a railway guard, not a particularly well-paid job, but respectable nonetheless. Plus, he was about the same age as Marie, only three years older. A year or two into the relationship, Fred proposed to Marie, and now Marie had a decision to make. For the better part of the past four years or so, she'd been working on getting a proposal from Patrick O'Connor. Marie weighed her options. Patrick O'Connor was the wealthier of the two men, and this was important to her. In her position as a lady's maid, she'd grown accustomed to fine things. And although we know nearly nothing about her upbringing, it's safe to say she did not come from wealth. She worked her way up to the position she was in, and she wasn't about to go back to her modest beginnings. It was obvious that Patrick would be able to provide the lifestyle she wanted. However, he was 20 years older than her and was said to have had a drinking problem. Fred, on the other hand, was her age and is often described as having a weaker character than Patrick, meaning it would be easier for Marie to wear the pants in the relationship, so to speak. So in this case, the weaker character was a plus for Marie. However, Fred was not wealthy. To try and sway Marie in her decision, Fred shares with her that yes, while he is making a modest salary at his railway job, he is poised to inherit a large sum of money from his aging mother when she dies. And this, plus her desire to kind of punish Patrick, makes her decision for her, and she and Fred are married on May 27, 1847. Shortly thereafter, though, Fred is fired from his railway guard job. The nature of the dismissal was never disclosed, but it's rumored that there was some sort of robbery that Fred may have played a part in. While there might not have been enough evidence to prosecute him, the company still saw fit to fire him on suspicion. The couple moved back to Fred's hometown of Taunton and opened an inn and pub. The honeymoon period of their new marriage didn't last long, however. Fred is said to have immediately started having affairs. Likewise, when the stress of their marriage became too much, Marie would go and stay with Patrick. Shortly after her marriage to Fred, Patrick had written her a letter informing her that he had been on the cusp of proposing to her and was saddened that he missed his chance. No one really believes this is true. Most think it's just a thing Patrick said to push Marie's buttons and stay under her skin. But either way, he made it plain that even though she was married, he still wanted to remain involved with her. And involved they remained. With Fred's blessing, apparently. You heard that right. For whatever reason, Fred was reportedly not only aware, but openly allowed his wife to continue on her relationship with Patrick O'Connor. Fred and Marie Manning would find themselves facing a new challenge, though, when on New Year's Day in 1849, someone robbed a Great Western train traveling from Plymouth to London. The next day, another train was hit on the same line traveling the opposite direction. The investigators found grappling hooks in the car, which was evidence that whoever did this had already been on the train. Further, once already on the train, the mail car could only be accessed from the first-class car. Through a process of elimination, two railway workers, Edward Nightingale and Henry Poole, were charged. Now, Fred Manning no longer worked for the railway, but he was friends with Henry Poole. In fact, he'd attended Fred and Marie's wedding. Both men had stayed at their inn, and unbeknownst to Fred, Henry Poole occasionally went around using Fred Manning's name as an alias. A rumor started that Fred had known the robbery was going to go down, and it was Marie that tipped off police. Now, this is not true, as it does not align whatsoever with how the thieves were caught, but it was enough to drag Fred and Marie into the investigation. Ultimately, the couple was cleared, but the damage had already been done. Respectable citizens now avoided the place due to its criminal reputation, and the underworld avoided it due to the rumors that Marie was a snitch. 
In the end, Fred and Marie were forced to close the pub and move to a different neighborhood. It sounds like they attempted to open another pub for a short while, though this quickly floundered as well, and eventually they settled into a home on Miniver Place in Bermondsey, where Marie supported the two by dressmaking and renting extra rooms to lodgers. It had become painfully obvious a long time ago that Fred's mother did not have the fortune he alleged she had. It was at this point that Fred took a bit of a downward spiral and spent his days drinking when he should have been out looking for work. His marriage was on the rocks now more than ever, but Fred did not care. In fact, Marie no longer even had to leave the house to carry on with Patrick. He came right over to the Manning residence while Fred was there. In fact, he regularly dined with the couple in their home. Maybe Fred, Patrick, and Marie all dallied together. Who knows? Sounds like it could have been the case. Despite the three keeping seemingly amicable company, Fred and Marie Manning start to wonder, can they exploit this relationship with Patrick? He still is quite wealthy, after all. And the two of them come up with a plan. On August 8, 1849, Marie invites Patrick around to dinner. Patrick brought a friend along, and Fred and Marie are happy to oblige. However, Marie lets him know that she'd been hoping to spend some time alone with him after dinner. Wink, wink. And perhaps he'd come back again for dinner the same time tomorrow, this time alone. And Patrick happily accepted. When Patrick arrived for dinner the next night, as soon as the door closed behind him, he was point-blank shot in the back of the head by Marie Manning. This didn't kill him, however, and it took several blows with a crowbar from Fred to finish him off. Then, the couple buried him in a shallow, pre-dug grave right there in the kitchen. They replaced the flagstones in the kitchen floor together and had dinner. That's the most widely agreed-upon version of events anyway, as in the end, the couple pointed the blame at one another, so we likely never really quite got the truth. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, as there's more of our story. The next day, Patrick, who was a customs officer, does not show up for work at the docks. This is unusual, but things happen. The day after that, Patrick is a no-show again. Now, this is completely out of character for Patrick, so one of his colleagues and cousin, William Flynn, went round to Patrick's residence to check on him. There, he found two of Patrick's friends who were equally concerned. They had not seen nor heard from their friend in two days and had, in fact, already been by the Mannings to see if they had heard from him. To their knowledge, the last they'd heard from Patrick was that he was headed there for dinner the evening of August 9th. But the Mannings had reported that he was actually a no-show for dinner that night, so they didn't know where he was either. Now, come to find out, the past two days that Patrick had been missing, the landlady reported that Marie had actually been to his place and had talked her way into being admitted to Patrick's quarters. Patrick's friends did not like the sound of this at all, and they reported him missing to the police. Now, I'm not sure what Marie told the landlady, but her true purpose there was to ransack his apartment for anything that could be deemed valuable. She stole money, railway shares, and likely anything else she could pocket that was worth anything. But after the police came knocking on their door inquiring about Patrick O'Connor, Marie got spooked. She immediately booked passage to Edinburgh and fled the country, leaving Fred to fend for herself. Fred ended up selling all of their furniture in their home and fleeing as well. The reasons reported for this are mixed. While Marie robbed Patrick, it might have been Fred's job to coordinate the furniture sale so they could make a clean escape together. Or, realizing the dire situation they were in, he had tried to sell the furniture behind Marie's back to raise the funds he needed for his own escape. Or, he realized Marie had abandoned him and concocted the furniture sale as plan B for his own escape. Whatever the case, once police realized Fred and Marie were gone, they grew even more suspicious of the couple and used this as reason to search the property. 
Now, it took them a few days of searching the house and even digging up the back garden, but finally, they noticed the floor is a bit soft in one corner of the kitchen. So they pull up the flagstones, and there they find the body of Patrick O'Connor. So now the hunt is on for a murderer. Two murderers, a murderous couple, a man and a woman where the victim was the wife's rich lover that the husband knew about. This is more than enough to shock the Victorian masses' delicate sensibilities, and the press ate the story up. It was the papers that began referring to this case as we do today, calling it the Bermondsey Horror. I believe it was a cab driver who came forward saying he dropped off a woman matching Marie's description at London Bridge Station. Investigators found that she checked several boxes and luggage at the office that had not been reclaimed. When opened, they were found to contain a set of bloodstained men's clothing, letters between Marie and Patrick, plus some other documents from his apartment. I'm going to speculate she intended to take all this with her to dispose of later, but she is running scared at this point, so she ended up just leaving everything behind. From London Bridge Station, she traveled to Euston Station, where she then booked a first-class train ticket to Edinburgh. When London police contacted officials in Edinburgh, it turns out they'd already had her in custody. She'd been apprehended trying to sell Patrick's railway shares that had been reported stolen. All in all, it took about a week to find Marie, after which she was extradited back to London, but she had no idea where Fred was. Fred had fled via Waterloo Station, but after that, he essentially disappeared. The biggest challenge police faced was that his physical description matched more than half the men living in the UK at the time. One week after Marie's arrest, though, the sister of an innkeeper for an inn where Fred had stayed five months ago recognized Fred on a steamship bound for Jersey. She hadn't actually seen the story in the newspapers prior, but shortly thereafter she did, and called in the tip. Fred had made plans to carry on to France, but had not followed through and instead stayed in Jersey, where he quickly made a reputation for himself as a menace. He'd been drinking and brawling in local pubs, not paying tabs, and just generally having a piss-and-vinegar attitude. He did not resist arrest, but he was full of questions about Marie. Had they found her? What had she told them? The course decided to try Fred and Marie together as this would afford them the best chance at successfully securing a guilty verdict with the death penalty. Laws of the time forbid a wife from being charged as an accessory to a murder committed by her husband. The court's strategy was to prove conspiracy and pre-knowledge and planning on both their parts. Fred and Marie both lawyered up separately. Knowing it would be more difficult to convict Marie in a separate trial, her lawyer argued that as Marie was a foreigner, it was unfair for her to be tried before a jury of Englishmen. The courts, of course, were not amenable to this and countered that her marriage to an English man made her an English citizen, and so the trial would go forth jointly. They did make a big to-do out of making sure there was enough representation of Swiss and French jurors, which truly took up the majority of the total runtime of the trial. Both lawyers tried hard to point the blame at the other's clients, but in the end, after two days of trial and 45 minutes of deliberation, both were found guilty and sentenced to death. During the sentencing by the judge, Marie, who had remained by far the more composed of the two the whole time, lost it. She screamed at the jury, you have treated me like a wild beast of the forest, and continued to rant and rave all the while the judge was speaking until court was adjourned and the prisoners were escorted out of the courtroom. After the trial concluded, Marie's rage turned into melancholy and three female wardens were assigned to remain with her in her cell at all times. She was on suicide watch, essentially. As her execution day neared, which took about three weeks, it reported that Marie allowed her fingernails to grow extra long, and on the day before her execution, she tried to strangle herself and puncture her own throat with her nails. It reportedly took all three of the female wardens to stop her. 
The execution was set to be a public execution on the rooftop of Horsemonger Lane Jail on November 13, 1849. The crowds were said to have numbered 30 to 50,000 spectators. One source reported that one woman was killed and two men were injured in a crowd crush that day. It's reported that Marie asked to be blindfolded for her walk to the scaffold. Fred approached the scaffold on trembling legs, but it said that Marie approached sure-footed and stoic. There is one version of the story that says Marie leaned over and kissed her husband as they stood on the gallows together, but I personally think that bit was added just for the drama, as she was blindfolded after all. Though historians don't generally agree with this, it was said that Marie had chosen to wear a black satin gown for her execution, and that afterward, black satin went dramatically out of fashion for its association with the murderous Marie Manning. As the executioner withdrew the bolt, it said that Fred died instantly while Marie appeared to struggle for several moments. Both were buried in the Horsemonger Lane Jail Cemetery. So far as the Manning residence and murder house in Miniver Place, it does not appear to be there anymore. In fact, Miniver Place itself doesn't even appear to be there anymore, as the entire area looks to have been redeveloped some time ago. In attendance of the execution had been author Charles Dickens, who vehemently opposed public executions. Of Fred and Marie's execution, he wrote, Thousands upon thousands of upturned faces so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink from himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. It was said that Dickens used Marie and her story as inspiration for the character Mademoiselle Hortense in his novel Bleak House. Interesting that Dickens was so vocally opposed to public executions, as he did seem to attend a lot of them, and here we have a character inspired by one. If you're interested in Victorian views of public executions, I did a Patreon bonus content episode about Victorian-era executions and why Victorians seem so enamored with them a few months back. Speaking of Patreon, this has been the story of the Bermondsey Horror, but the bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is the story of the Bermondsey Ghost. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. You can let me know your thoughts about this case and see some photos of Fred, Marie, Patrick, and more on Instagram at a goodnight for a murder. The photos and source links can also be found in the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send out an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. To subscribe to Patreon or learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at A Goodnight for a Murder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. And to accompany episode 33 about the Bermondsey Horror, I'm going to tell you about the Bermondsey Ghost. So apparently, Bermondsey is very haunted. You can find plenty of books and podcasts that have compiled multiple ghostly encounters of the Bermondsey area. But because A Good Night for a Murder often likes to walk the line between a good Victorian ghost story and true crime, there is one Bermondsey ghost story that I want to share with you in particular. It begins at the Bacon Residence on London Street in Bermondsey. Charles Bacon worked as a dock laborer and carman, which was like a delivery driver. 
When he was about 21, he married Rachel Ball and they had seven children together. Not all the children survived infancy or childhood, though they were able to raise at least two daughters together, the youngest of which was named Caroline. When Caroline was about 11 years old, her mother died. Seven months later, her father remarried. And this may sound very fast to us, but back then, marriage was often not about love or companionship. It was about survival, especially for the working class. It's likely Charles needed two incomes in order to keep his house and provide for his children. So he married Sarah Tucky. And Caroline had a very hard time accepting this. She grows sullen and resentful of both her father and her new stepmother. Caroline's sour behavior continued in school as well, where she was regarded as bad, idle, and beyond.